and welcome to the midweek edition of Legal AF with your regular co-hosts, Michael Popak and Karen Friedman Agnifilo. Playing the part of Michael Popak as a co-host today will be Michael Popak, actually rejoining <laughs> Karen after one or two episode absence. Today, we cover the most consequential legal and political news so far this week. We're going to talk about Fawny Willis and her having been disqualified for investigating one of the fake electors in the form of Representative Burt Jones, who's running for Lieutenant Governor of Georgia, and what it means and what it doesn't mean for Mr. Jones and what happens next. We'll talk about uh, U.S. Congressman Jody Heiss, a Republican, and his efforts to quash his fake elector scheme subpoena for the special grand jury in Georgia and what happened when he went to the Northern District of Georgia federal court um, to have that happen. And we're going to talk about the uh, DOJ and it's and one of its several grand juries in Washington, D.C. is heating up and focusing now on Donald Trump, not just for the Jan 6 insurrection, but likely for his criminal interference in the election process. And they're starting at the top. They're starting with Mark Short, the former uh, chief of staff with for Mike Pence, who was with him on Jan 6th, and Greg Jacobs, the chief legal counsel for Mike Pence, focusing on the Eastman uh, pressure, along with Donald Trump and Mark Meadows, on Mike Pence to throw the electoral count and throw it back to the House. And the fact that they have called for these two at the very tippy top to talk about, obviously, the pressure on Mike Pence and the uh, Eastman-led attempts to uh, throw the election over to the House is a bad sign for Donald Trump. And separately, a bad sign for Donald Trump is the interview that Merrick Garland gave today with um, the day we recorded with Lester Holt, in which he would not rule out that the crime of election interference could reach the highest levels, including Donald Trump. That's uh, a bad thing for Donald Trump. And it's a bad thing for the Secret Service to have its inspector general of the Department of Homeland Security open up a criminal investigation as to what happened with those missing text messages from January 6th. This is an organization that has suffered greatly in the last decade or so from scandals involving prostitutes to drunken agents uh, and now cover-up, potentially, of Donald Trump at the highest levels of the Secret Service. This is the organization that we have protect the leaders of the free world. We're in trouble. We're going to talk about it with former prosecutor Karen Friedman Agnifilo. We've got a lot to talk about, Karen. How are you? I haven't seen you in a long time. I know. You have the most beautiful background today, Popak. I love <laughs> looking at that. It's wonderful. People think I'm renting this background. I am I am sort of. I mean, it is it is the home that I'm in for the summer, but yeah. <laughs> and it's the quietest place to go. Everyone's like, he's always on the porch and it's getting dark why and it's because it's, it's the it has the best wi-fi in the spot i'm sitting in and it, and i'm not interrupted in any place else so let's let's dive into i think the thing that everybody's talking about now is you know merrick garland's taking a lot of a lot of poop a lot of crap for not moving fast enough for the twitterverse for our followers and listeners to prosecute donald trump at the highest level we've known because you and i have talked about it in the past that there are not one, not two, but likely three grand juries going on in the District of Columbia, criminal grand juries looking at not just Jan 6, but for now fake electors we know. Um, and 
criminal interference of the election process, obstruction of the election process by the president and bringing in two of the president's men or two of the vice president's men in Mark Short and Greg Jacobs. What do you make of it? What is it? What does it mean to you as a prosecutor that having now completed the 800 people that were involved with the storming of the Capitol and the siege that was laid on our Capitol, they're now bringing in witnesses like the inner sanctum of Mike Pence. What does it mean for you? I think it's pretty clear that they've moved past just the insurrectionists and now they're moving to uh, toward the top. And they're finally getting to people who were in the room with the president when uh, he tried to pressure Mike Pence to agree to go along with the Eastman plan to put these fake electors in place. And these are witnesses who were present during that meeting. And right as we're about to tape this podcast tonight, the Washington Post broke a story where sources are confirming that the questioning of these two in the grand jury uh, what had a lot to do and focused a lot on the, on Trump. They said four four witnesses or four sources were confirming that, which I think is pretty significant because grand juries, by their very nature, are secret bodies. They are bodies that are sworn to secrecy. We don't get to know about it, and so anything that's happening happens because somebody is telling. You know, the witnesses who testify before the grand jury are allowed to talk but prosecutors and grand jurors are not. And so it's just interesting that this is starting to come out and we're getting confirmation that Garland is starting to look at what's at the president and um, whether or not charges will come of it, that's a whole other, that's a whole other, um, a whole other story and the grand jury will have to vote on it. But really what it tells me is that, that Garland is, 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 watching the January 6th um, committee uh, hearings and starting to actually put these witnesses under oath and question them and gather evidence and see if there is evidence uh, going towards towards the former president. So I think it's going to be very interesting uh, what happens here. He um, Garland in his interview, which I've seen parts of or the transcript of, came right out and said he's watching the Jan 6th um, hearings and has been troubled by what he's heard about the interference with the peaceful transfer of power, which means exactly what you just laid out, that they are now focused, forget the 700 idiots who, with armed idiots, who laid siege on the Capitol. Let's focus on the president and what happened in the White House on fateful meetings on July 4 and 5, and even before that, where John Eastman uh, held court, no pun intended, and try to convince adults like Mark Short and Greg Jacobs and Pat Cipollone and others and the and the uh, acting Department of Ju- uh, head of the Department of Justice Attorney General Jeff Rosen to go along with his plan. I mean, from the reporting, because remember these people have also testified. Both Short and Jacobs have testified at Jan Six. And so we've seen their testimony. We know their testimony. And so we can speculate as to what they said in their three hours a piece or so in front of a criminal grand jury because we've like heard their testimony. So Jacobs has testified already under oath to the, the Jan 6 committee that Eastman in the White House with Meadows present and and the vice president present and Trump present present presented two two plans for Pence. 
one, reject the electoral vote count completely and throw it over to the House of Representatives or the state legislatures. And they were like, no. And the second one was, well, at least suspend the proceedings, suspend the count on Jan 6th um, to uh, give the states time to reconsider their electoral votes. And that led to Jacobs having an interesting exchange with Eastman, both by text and in in a live live uh, debate where he said, this academic theory of yours, this would lose nine zero in front of the Supreme Court. And Eastman first said, no, it would lose it would lose seven to two. And he said, well, who, who would be your two? And Eastman, who we know is close to Ginny Thomas, said, well, maybe Clarence Thomas. But then even he had to concede this absent-minded professor of law had to concede that it would be nine zero loss, his theory. So, so to which Jacob said, well, we're not doing this. We're not going to overturn the founding fathers, democracy and Republic for some academic theory that you came up with that even you admit would lose nine zero at this Supreme court that we're not doing. So that that's Jacobs. Then Jacobs had, if you remember, Karen, a text exchange on Jan 6th at around noon with Eastman, where he said, your, this is quoting, your bullshit of this, this pressure on Pence and what he could do with the electors is, it, look what you've done. Look at the violence that you've brought on the Capitol, to which Eastman said, no, it's not that. It's because your boss wouldn't do the right thing and buy us more time to have the electors count. So that's, we know, is Greg Jacobs, who also, do you remember Greg J Jacobs brought in uh, Michael Lustig, the judge, to give the opinion to Pence that this was this was a um, bullshit, cockamamie bullshit that should not be followed, which gave Pence the confidence to, to, to stand up finally to Trump. Anything else about Jacobs that you think is interesting to the criminal grand jury? What I think is interesting is, you know, we've talked before about whether or not the January 6th committee should make a referral to the Department of Justice. And I've mentioned and said before that I thought that's largely ceremonial and doesn't it's not a thing and the Department of Justice doesn't need it. And I want to give them a lot of credit that there's nothing, you know, actions speak louder than words. And um, and they have done an extraordinary job at presenting the case to the public slash the Department of Justice so that they can see exactly the facts that you just laid out so perfectly. I mean, you're making the case for prosecution and and you're right. And, and, and the reason that the prosecution is doing it is because they're seeing it. They're seeing it because of these, these really important hearings that were done. So I give them a lot of credit for, for choosing this as the avenue to communicate, frankly, to the Department of Justice and say, this is the evidence, here it is. And this is what you need to um, kick around. And so that's what they're doing there. You know, it's one thing to, to testify uh, and not be cross-examined and to, you know, sort of just talk about hearsay and you know, everything, anything goes in the, in the, in the hearings, but in the grand jury, they can, um, they can really ask some tough questions under oath and test the information and see what is admissible, what's not, and what people will say under oath. So I, I think it's going to, I, I just think this is what we need to watch that, that people who are saying he's going too slow or he's not doing it. It's so clear that he's there and the department of justice is there and, and they're at least exploring right. it. And he knew which the, the line prosecutor who's handling this in, in uh, 
District of Columbia, they knew which two to pull first because of the Jan 6 testimony. Because of the testimony, like, right. It, it, it's obvious, and you've done it, you've done it on the prosecutor's side, that they were like, okay, we want to get to Trump now. And and we know from the Jan 6 that, that the way, the most fingerprints for Trump on the obstruction of the peaceful transfer of power is his use of Eastman to pressure Pence. Remember the Jan 6 session, I don't know if it was four or five or six, somewhere in there, it was the whole pressure Mike Pence session, right? That was all the testimony that was brought forward. So they've taken a version of that and they brought that in now to a new grand jury. And they're bringing in, this is now just to, not to make too fine of a point, Mark Short is the highest level white, a West Wing White House person that has testified in front of the grand jury to date. It's not Cassidy Hutchinson, who is powerful and saw everything as a fly on the wall, but she's not the chief of staff for the vice president of the United States. And Greg Jacobs as a lawyer for the president, for the vice president, who's being pressured by the president to not allow the peaceful transfer of power this implement this cockamamie Eastman strategy. That's what they're focused on. I'm sure you're right. After witness, yeah. I'm sure you're right that he's the highest level that has uh, that has testified. But I, I just want to put a, a tiny fine point on that, which is he's the highest level person that we know of who has testified. Because again, True. it's secret. So this is what's yeah. of all it's been the very things, leaky though. It's been it has very been leaky. very leaky. I just, but I just, <laughs> there are times when i've 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 been there and there are times when things leak out and then there are times when things don't leak out and you you're, you're surprised that yeah. it doesn't so you're probably right um and i'm almost sure you're right i just want it yeah. is it is a secret proceeding and 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 so yeah. uh we'll see it's secret with every camera on the street around that <laughs> around that they know where that grand jury is mm-hmm. um well but, that's what the yeah. new, that's that's what the new york times did when when the manhattan da's office was investigating trump they they parked yeah. a reporter outside mm-hmm. the grand jury and they would just watch who's going in and who's not and then they could tell there was a flurry of activity and then they could tell when when it stopped because they could just see who's going into the building it's it's interesting i i, I am a big supporter of the first amendment and freedom of the press and the role of the press and a free society, except my heart got really sad, just to change topics for one second, got really sad today with all the reporting about the fact that Roberts was unable, in his view, to get that last vote, whether it was Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett, to save Roe versus Wade because of the leak to Politico. And and to think that, yes, it was a scoop, and yes, they couldn't, I'm sure they couldn't embargo it, and they had to run with it when they got it because it oh, was they news. Had to. Yeah. But it may go down in history as the reason why that we don't have a constitutional right to abortion. Just saying the media is great. Investigative reporting is great. Generally, sunshine is the greatest antiseptic, although sometimes it makes the work of backroom negotiations more difficult. And I think it happened there. So we have um, Greg Jacobs, who testified at length, we know, at the Jan 6 committee, who's now been now in front of the grand jury, um, talking also about Eastman. We know his links, his links to Mike Pence as the as his primary uh, advice giver, legal advice giver, bringing in Judge Lustig for the last day or two to tell Mike Pence in no, no uncertain terms that there was no legal justification at all or constitutional justification 
and and have it hurt and have him hear it from a right wing federalist society unassailable not a rhino legal advisor in michael lustig i think that's greg jacobs other great contribution to this story and now i think it'll take on a life of its own and the momentum will build we'll see more they're not going to stop it short in jacobs this is going to this is going to continue to be layered on and layered on and layered on and while the congress is on a summer break until september in terms of the jan 6 committee the doj is not do you ever take a break did your did your did your prosecutor team ever take a break for the summer? Oh, yeah, no, no, definitely not. Crime doesn't stop. So there's going to be crime doesn't <laughs> crime and crime prosecution doesn't stop. There's going to be a lot of things for you and me to talk about over the summer, in a way because now the Department of Justice has it to themselves, has the stage to themselves That's for at true. least the next month month or so. So we're going to see that. So, but things don't always go perfect for prosecutions, and <laughs> we we love Fawny Willis, and we've. We've given her a lot of kudos on all versions of legal AF about what she's been able to accomplish in with great courage. I was going to say political courage, but that's going to get me in trouble with the story with great courage as a prosecutor in a way that we faulted. You know, we always sometimes use Fawny Willis as the anti-Merrick Garland. Look what she's doing. Why isn't he doing that? And, you know, we've also had to have noticed as as has the chief judge of um, Fulton County that she's, you know, in the media a lot, you know, she's talking to the press and she's giving interviews and she's telling people that she's got conviction and she's not going to give up and she's going to take the evidence where it leads her. And, you know, sort of like Merrick Garland. So she's doing those things, except she got wrapped on the knuckles at a hearing earlier this week when uh, most of the 14 or so fake electors in Georgia who are now facing potentially real charges brought various motions to either quash their subpoenas to give testimony under the Fifth Amendment, or in the case of Burt Jones, who is an elected official in Georgia and is also running to be lieutenant governor on the Republican ticket, filed a motion to disqualify Phony Willis because she not only donated to his adversary, but she held a primary fundraiser with her name all over it, as the as one of the chair people that she hosted when he was in a prime when when the candidate was in a primary fight that he eventually won with a democratic opponent why does that matter because Fawny willis has a boss and the boss in this case is the chief judge of fulton county robert ci mcburney who used to be in that office in his past he was an assistant, assistant district attorney in Fulton County. He was an assistant U.S. attorney. He went to Harvard for law school and undergraduate. He's not a he's not a dummy, and he had and he reminded her after hearing the evidence of a couple of things at the hearing. One, you're doing a lot of press, and remember, you're not the prosecutor here. You're the special advisor to a special grand jury that I supervise. So the judge flexed a little muscle there. Was, I think it's the first hearing he really had where he had an audience with Fawny and got the kind of reminder of who's who and who, who does she report to? And you're, so that was one, that was very interesting. And the second thing he said to her was, what were you thinking when you held a fundraiser for a, somebody that you've identified as a target, which later in his opinion, he said, well, I don't know why you're using the target phrase. That's really federal criminal vocabulary, but I get it. You mean that he's potentially a higher suspect or a higher, 
uh, uh, higher value in your prosecution or the presentation to your grand jury. But the guy that you're targeting is also the guy that you're donating money to his opponent. And that just smells terrible. And so at the hearing, he basically said, what were you thinking? The optics are terrible and I'm not happy about it. I thought when, when I heard the hearing, I want to hear your opinion. I thought she was going to skate by and maybe that he'd have her assign it to a different office. But I was surprised by the ultimate ruling, which was she's disqualified. So is her office. And we'll have to go to a whole nother prosecutor in a whole nother county who's going to have to make the decisions about Burt Jones. What did you think about his observations at the hearing? And what did you think about the ultimate eight page decision that he came out with? Uh, to me, this was just a, an unforced error on the part of the prosecution. I mean, this is the most high profile case in the country. It's definitely the most high profile investigation in her office. And you have to do everything super careful and by the book. And, you know, when you look at the timing of uh, of everything, on January 20th, she requested a special grand jury before this judge. Then on January 21st, 4th, sorry, he granted this special grand jury. And, you know, it was very clear that Burt Jones was one of the fake electors that she was investigating. And, she, and on five on May 2nd, she the grand jury was sworn in, but they waited and they had a gap and didn't hear any uh, testimony at all until after the Georgia primary because she's so acutely aware of how important it is that criminal investigations and things um, of the sort and doesn't don't interfere with elections. So she even waited. And so she was aware of this. She was aware of how important what she was doing was, but that after, well after the grand jury started receiving this evidence, the DA's office, Fonnie Willis, she hosted and headlined a fundraiser for the person who would ultimately, it was a runoff between two Democrats and she 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 did a fundraiser for the one that she supported, but ultimately the one who won would, would be the one who would run against Burt Jones. And so the, they basically said what the, what the judge said was, um, you know, the DA's office said, oh, but it was a runoff election. It wasn't for Burt Jones's opponent, but, but the court said that doesn't matter because Jones was the candidate he would always be the candidate, and that's who the winner is going to is going to face. And the court had a, had a distinction here and said, "Look, you could have donated personal money, which she did, and that was okay. But once she the quote that I wrote down was once she has she she has bestowed her offices imprimatur upon Senator." Senator Jones's opponent. And so because this was an official fundraiser from the office of the Fulton County prosecutor, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Fonnie Willis in her personal Fon capacity. Citizen Fonnie Willis. Yes, right. it was not in her personal capacity, which she has a First Amendment right to support a candidate. But once she puts the imprimatur of the office of the Fulton County DA's office on a fundraiser, at that point, he said, it's not just the appearance of impropriety. There's a, a plain and actual untenable conflict of interest and every single decision then that is made 
in this investigation is infected by this conflict. You know, whether or not to issue a subpoena to somebody or proffer them is a subjective decision. Whether or not to question someone aggressively or mildly, these were all things in the judge's decision, by the way. Whether or not somebody's a target or a subject, these are all things that a, that a DA's office subjectively can make decisions. And every one of these decisions, because they're, you know, Every one of these decisions is basically going to be affected and, as he said, infected by this conflict of interest. And he and he specifically said that this is not the mere appearance of impropriety. This is an actual conflict and it's palpable and it's not speculative. So I thought it was a very powerful decision. And, you know, look, you can't in an investigation that's this significant, you can't have these types of, you know, these types of conflicts in them. And, and this was imminently avoidable. I don't know why she did something like this. And so, you know, it's a shame, but yeah. look, he, but he ultimately said the judge ult- ultimately said um, that, that Burt Jones is the only one that you can't investigate and be involved in questioning. That one is going to go to somebody else, but you can keep everybody else. So that's, that's- yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I don't, I, I, um, I had to agree with him. Uh, you know, if you're doing a, a political prosecution, you know, if your old boss, Cy Vance, was doing a corruption case against a politician and at the same time at his house hosted a fundraiser for the opponent, that would be, he would be excoriated in the press and he would either disqualify himself because he realized the bad judgment or he would never make that decision. Bonnie Willis made an, as you said, an unforced error here. And the problem is proven in the judge's decision by what the what her preferred candidate did and what he was allowed to do he he's using as his platform that Burt Jones is corrupt because he's the target of an investigation by Fawny Willis as part of being a faked elector so bring this thing full circle the person that she's contributing money and hosting and as you said, putting the warm embrace of the DA's office on is running ads in which he's saying, Fawny Willis, my buddy, is prosecuting him for underhanded conduct. And this is why you have to elect me to clean up, to clean up. Uh, you need a better lieutenant governor than that. Exactly. You you don't want people to think on, on any side of the political spectrum that you've got your prosecutor in your back pocket to go after your opponent and run ads parallel to that. Avoid it. It's okay. As he said, the judge said, it's okay to exercise your first amendment. Just don't hold a political fundraiser for a person you've identified as a target and you won't have a problem. Now to answer the question that most of the Twitter verse is not answered. And I actually looked up what happens next. As you said, he's not off the hook. Okay. Until July the 1st <laughs> of this year, the attorney general for the state of Georgia would pick a new prosecutor and that prosecutor would have to use its prosecutorial discretion as to whether they would ask for a new special grand jury. They can't use this one. This one is not available to any prosecutor. This is the way I read the decision. If you if, raise your hand, if you think I'm wrong, this special grand jury can't be used even by another prosecutor about Burt Jones, period. You agree with that? Yes. Yeah. So I think the new prosecutor, and I'll talk about who I think picks the new prosecutor, will have to make a 
prosecutorial decision as to whether they're going to indict without the use of the special grand jury, use a regular grand jury, whatever they're going to do, that's going to be that office and that prosecutor against Burt Jones. As of July 1, with an amendment to the uh, Georgia Code, 15-18-5, this is why people come to Legal AF, it is the Prosecuting Attorney's Council. You ever heard of such a thing? We have that in New York? No. There is a council of prosecuting attorneys throughout the state that are going to, in consultation with the attorney general, make the decision. Once Fawney sends them a letter that she either recuses herself or has been disqualified, which I'm sure she's done by now, they then have to convene some sort of conclave and decide whether there's going to be a special prosecutor, a new prosecutor, and who that's going to be. And so we're going to follow this story because I don't think Burt Jones is off the hook for his role because even the judge called it a fake elector scheme. He seemed to have a jaundiced view of the whole scheme. He just wrapped the knuckles of Fawny Willis. The other thing that I thought was interesting in learning about the special prosecutor, uh, special grand jury process, it's all kind of new to us, is that in the hearing, at least, he reminded everybody that it's not Fawny Willis's office who makes the decision as to when that report, it's a report that gets issued not to her, not to her office, but to the uh, to the chief judge, him, of Fulton County. He reads it. He then releases the report. And he said, if that report comes out without a buffer between the election, the midterm election, and that report, I'm going to embargo it. I'm going to buffer it. And I'm not going to release it until after the election if I don't think there's sufficient time. So there's now pressure on Fawny Willis. If she wants to get this thing out before the election, it's got to be well before the election. Or he's going to keep pocket the report and put it in a drawer until after the election. And, he, and, and, in, and in his order, he quoted back to her and said, well, you did a similar thing because you delayed presenting certain evidence to the grand jury as you were getting close to an election. And I'm going to do the same thing. So I learned a lot in the special grand jury process. I learned the chief judge has a lot of power. I learned that, the, that we've been calling her the DA, but in the case of a special grand jury, she's a special advisor, that he makes the ultimate decisions and he can disqualify people for doing really bad things and a new prosecutor has to come in. Very interesting process. It is very interesting. So yeah. what do you make of the July 1st change in rules of this council? Is this was that a coincidence or was that done? I don't know. I don't really don't know. I didn't do the legislative <laughs> history. I just happened to catch that there is a, such a thing as a prosecutor's council and that they're the one until apparently for the last uh, 15 years when there's been a disqualification of a prosecutor, which happens, you know, I'm sure it's happened in your office when that happens. It always went to the attorney general. Maybe they wanted to depoliticize it because that attorney general is always elected in some party. And maybe, you know, maybe even in Georgia, they decided they wanted to not have that as political. So let's have a council make the decision. Yeah. I think it's very interesting. No, but yeah, it's, look, it's we're going to see who they pick. Yeah, yeah, no, it's look, it's common. Prosecutors usually are the ones who disqualify, not, you know, they recuse themselves. It's it's not, they don't yeah. call it disqualification. They recuse themselves and then they request that somebody else be appointed. But to have a judge sort of, as you said, wrap on the knuckles, you know, for this one was, yeah. it was, it's, it, we are, you know, hopefully she won't make this mistake or this sort of mistake again. Right. But you see, you our followers and listeners should see, and then we'll move on to Secret Service, but they should see the level of exceptional 
bad conduct or or bad judgment that has to occur for a prosecutor to be bounced because you, we saw that Trump, you know, Trump yelling and screaming through Alina Haba, his lawyer, that Letitia James is not a prosecutor, but a, a civil attorney general in this in this aspect, it has it out for him and should be removed and this and that. And, you know, through everything at the wall to see if anything would stick, that's not going to work. You know, neither a state court judge nor the federal judge thought any of what he was talking about. Even her press conferences, even her running, Letitia James running on a platform that she was going to be the sheriff of Trump world mm -hmm. and she was going to go after him. Even that's not enough. You see the level. Just don't host a fundraiser for somebody that you think's a target. In don't your have your office. Don't have your office host a fundraiser. Right. But and have we, him use the logo. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So before Crazy. we move on and go to the Secret Service, can sure. we talk about Jody Heiss? Oh, yeah. Let's start. So why don't you describe Representative Jody Heiss, who's, for those that don't know, is a man, um, and, and why he went to federal court and what he argued in trying to quash his subpoena to a federal judge in the Northern District of Georgia who is an Obama appointee, a Democrat. Second time, we saw Judge Totenberg up there, Northern District, throwing the book at um, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And now they they pull the bad judge for the Republicans up there again in their federal court. Talk about Jody Heiss and what you think it means for Senator Lindsey Graham. So Jody Heiss is an ultra-conservative from Georgia, and he's part of the House Freedom Caucus, which is the sort of ultra-right, ultra-conservative, um, uh, you know, kind of people who um, are in the House of Representatives. And he was part of, and he was at the December 21st, 2020 strategy meeting with Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani and, and all of those people. And so, you know, Fonnie Willis is particularly interested in, in kind of what Heiss has to say and in the conversations, you know, that were had. And so she um, subpoenaed him to testify before the grand jury and Heiss went to a federal court and said, uh, in a, I think it was a motion to quash, basically um, said, you know, I don't want to have to testify because there is something in the First Amendment of the United States uh, Constitution called the Speech and Debate Clause. And the Speech and Debate Clause basically uh, shields members of Congress from being questioned in court about legislative activities, about their motivations behind them. And he also argued that he has this second level of protection because he's, quote, a high-ranking official, which is a special designation that also gives him a higher legal standard when compelled to testify. So he basically said, you know, that I, I, because of this, I am immune from having to testify in the grand jury. The judge said, um, not so fast, only certain parts of what you, of, of, of your, what you would testify to are protected by the speech and debate clause that uh, if you talk about things that were outside of your congressional duties with people who weren't members of Congress, you weren't on the House floor, you weren't um, negotiating, you know, in Congress for, for things you were sort of having these closed door um, meetings with these, you know, the, the Meadowses and the Giuliani's of the world to try to, you know, to try to engage in this, stop the steal kind of 
stuff that they were engaging in. And so the judge said, you can ask those questions. You just can't ask the, the, the types of questions that are protected under the speech and debate, debate clause. The judge even said, so this is a question by question type of analysis. And the judge said, I will even stand outside the grand jury door and be there to confer question by question about whether this question is protected by the speech and debate clause or this question must be answered, which I found incredibly, I mean, look, there's always a grand jury judge that you can stop the questioning and the lawyers run out and you ask, you know, the judge to rule on something, but a judge willing to stand outside the door and rule question by question. I thought this was so many, so many extraordinary things are happening in, in this case, but that's kind of how important this is. And, and that's, what's going to happen there. So um, I, I thought that was I thought that was a positive yeah. development. So so, so uh, Judge Lee Martin May, Obama appointee, was confirmed ninety nine to zero in twenty fourteen. You'd never see those numbers again by the Senate. <laughs> and the um, speech and debate clause, which sounds like speech speech and debate class that I took in high school, but the speech and debate clause is Article One, Section Six, Clause One of the constitution that says effectively that a member of Congress cannot be questioned in any other place other than Congress. So if you want to ask him questions about legislative matters, deliberations that he made or things related to that, he can't be questioned anywhere, but in the house of representatives or in the Senate, which means the other place being a courtroom or the like. And there's a, there's a legislative history to that because founding fathers didn't want a, um, a a political operative or a president or a prosecutor who didn't like a result um, in the House, a, a legislative result in the House or, or the Senate to then pull that person out and try to criminally prosecute them or make them answer for their charges. So if it so as the judge, as you rightly noted, if the judge finds that the questions are at the heart of what a legislator does, in the legislative activities, which, you know, Heiss argued includes his constitutional role in the electoral counting process, then no. However, even the judge in Fulton County for Phony Willis that we just talked about thread the needle this way. If the legislator is talking to third parties, aha, and Heiss is known to have talked to third parties about the fake elector uh, scheme, probably not covered by the speech and debate clause because it what does it have to do with what you're doing on the house floor when you're when you're talking outside the privilege if you will to a third party like not another elected official like a bannon like a um east giuliani giuliani a powell a jenna jenna ellis a lynn wood who we don't talk about anymore all those uh, team abnormal or team crazy, whatever it was called, that does not likely cover your privilege, doesn't give you the privilege. And that's what the judge was saying. And she also instructed um, that his legal team and Fawny Willis's legal team get together and try to develop a set of questions and parameters for her to review before he goes in, likely in August, to give testimony before the grand jury. He's going in. And they're going to try to pick their way through this minefield. And if they run into problems, I don't know if she's going to be in the hallway, but I think she's going to be available by phone for a phone call to try to resolve on the spot, almost like our own special master, questions that come up on the fly. 
this is going to be fascinating, but it's also going to lay the blueprint. Um, I don't know if she's going to be the judge assigned. I don't know where. Uh, actually, I don't think she is the judge assigned. I think um, Senator Graham has filed already. And I don't know off the top of my head. We'll have to throw it up on the screen when we're doing the uh, final production of this podcast. But um, I assume that this judge will look at what uh, what Judge uh, May has just done because Graham is going to say the same thing. Oh, I was the sitting uh, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. You know? That was the reason I was making my phone calls. Into, I don't know why I'm making him into Foghorn. No, I was going to say Leg, nice. Leghorn. Nice, yeah, nice fake Southern accent, by the way. <laughs> that was my Warner Brothers Foghorn Leghorn uh, again, you know, a voice. But, you know, he's going to make the same speech and debate clause. I don't know about the highest ranking executive thing. I don't think that privilege sort of flies. Did you ever hit that one when you were a prosecutor, the apex no. officer? No. I, no. I don't even think that's a thing when yeah, it comes I, to a privilege. Yeah. yeah, it's like sometimes you need to talk to the top guy or top woman, and that's how this works. And you don't get to say, well, I'm the top person. I shouldn't go first. Um, I don't think that's I don't think that's how that privilege works. All right, we'll follow that one. Let's let's end the podcast with the um with the uh Secret Service and the fact that hasn't really gotten them there there's there's so much going on right now in the political legal world that you and I occupy, especially for this podcast, that the fact that the Department of Homeland Security um, Office of Inspector General has opened a criminal investigation and informed the Secret Service, who used to be one of the leading investigative agencies in this country, that they must stand down from their own internal investigation because a criminal investigation has been opened by this Inspector General has gotten very little press. What do you make of it? based on these missing text messages. Are the, is the Secret Service really in deep shit? It, this one worries me a little bit. You know, my my first reaction was, come on, it's the Secret Service. You know, they are just so kind of untouchable. I mean, they're this incredible organization that investigates cyber crime and identity theft, and they're this premier organization. They protect the president, and, you know, they, they then they, you know, they've had a few controversies involving, you know, sort of, thing a few agents here and there but never anything like this and so at first when i saw this i i i didn't think much of it and then when i started looking into it a little more i think there might be something here and i'm really disappointed you know part of me thinks did they take their um we have to protect the president at all costs a little too seriously and you know they're trying to protect the president here by deleting these text messages <clears throat> you know i i don't know i i can't you did have Tony Ornato, who um, who left the Secret Service and became a political operative for Donald Trump, and then went back to the Secret Service. and And I always thought they were supposed to be kind of nonpartisan. You know, they they're just there to to protect and to serve. But but this Secret Service with with Tony Ornato in particular and and Engel, I think are 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 showing that that they are a little political and. The fact that they he, they would go and work for Donald Trump and the fact that they were saying, you know, trying to undermine Cassidy Hutchinson when she came forward and was talking about this whole, you know, the, the fight in the car about going to the Capitol. I am starting to wonder whether this was nefarious and whether they dumped the text messages from January 5th and 6th, but they only found one text message through all of this. So look, there's a couple of questions that I, I want, I want to answer. I want answered. Number one, do the secret service 
communicate via text message. You know, you always see on TV that and, and in person they have that squiggly thing right. coming out of their ear. Do they just communicate through that? Or do they text message one another or other people? That that's eminently knowable. If the answer is yes, where the hell are those? The other question I'd want to know is is I've heard some people say this was part of some migration, you know, that they were from one system to another, that they were that they were just coincidentally happened to migrate from one of these systems and it happens to affect the the these text messages in question. Now, again, that's imminently knowable. That's something that, and I said this, I think with Ben the other day, that the government is slow. Everything in the government takes a lot of time and a lot of deliberation. And so if they were really migrating from one system to another, that would have taken years to put out an RFP, pick the system, then you have to plan to migrate the system. I mean, th there'd be so much red tape that you could find about this system migration that it either exists or it doesn't. And the other third thing that just really just smacks of just lacking any credibility to me is they know how important an investigation is. Things like, like text messages and emails and, you know, the the, the sort of spoken word testimony is no longer the gold standard the way it once was. People have, you know, when, when you are investigating a crime and someone comes forward and says, you know, X, Y, and Z happened, memories are fallible. You know, memories fade. Memories aren't perfect. But so what, what, what prosecutors look for now and what really kind of brings home cases are things like text messages and emails and, and things that sort of record in real time uh, what's happening. And, you know, even in metadata about like, you know, cell phone towers are pinging in a particular location. So you can say that, you know, Karen Friedman Agnifilo was in, you know, uh, Nashville, Tennessee today, which I am because my cell phone is going to ping to Nashville, Tennessee. Even if you can't see what I said, you'll be able to know those things. And, and those are the types of things that prosecutors look at, those little details. And so that's the, the Secret Service knows knows this better than anyone. They are the premier cyber investigators in this country. They have incredible cyber technology capabilities and prosecutors would routinely go to them over any other agency, local, federal, or state, because they are such experts in this area. So they know better. And so they didn't preserve the text messages of their Secret Service agents during the January 5th and January 6th insurrection, probably the biggest crime to happen in our nation's history at our nation's capital, where they were protecting the president and the vice president and and taking Mike Pence from one place to another and then, you know, clearing the way. We saw those videos at the hearing. So I think there's something here and I think it's I don't like what it's coming out to look like. I think it's it smells bad. And I think that the inspector general is going to look at things like like metadata and see if the stuff was kept uh, elsewhere and if they can kind of recreate I mean, if anyone can do it, you know, certainly they can and see if they can recreate what happened here. So we're going to find out this is something to watch and to stay tuned because we are going to find out the answer. This is not something that we're going to scratch our heads in months from now and say, oh, we just don't know what happened. This is something that you, we will know one way or another if it was an accident or if it was nefarious. And I'm starting right. to unfortunately think that it was that they were protecting the president yeah. at all costs, which even meant dumping the um, dumping the text messages. Uh, here's my theory. The Secret Service um, was co-opted by Donald Trump the way he co-opted other 
um, other guardrails of democracy. Um, we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, we've heard for years that we've heard, we've had inklings of this, of the secret service being compromised in, um, especially the, the detail that, that handles the protection of the president and the first family and, uh, and others, you know, drunken orgies and prostitutions and, and other, and uh, we had one recently, you know, secret service was sent home from, from, uh, Biden's trip abroad and the, and this theory that they are apolitical and they will, um, they completely are, you know, like Buckingham palace guards who just stand there like, um, uh, sphinxes who don't have thoughts and aren't uh, partisan, I think is over. Um, and Trump took advantage of that uh, by having Ornato placed in the West Wing and the like. And there has to be the issue, the symptom of the disease is the missing or what we call in the business spoliated text messages. The disease is that this is a service that has to be completely overhauled from top to bottom, the way the CIA was a number of years ago, the way the FBI was a number of years ago. There needs to be an overhaul of training, of remediation, of personnel, of recruiting, and of everything. Because this is now just the way Trump has made us, has pressure-tested democracy and all of the checks and balances. There is a rotten core right now, I believe, to the Secret Service that has to be overhauled. My fear is if we don't get another Democrat in office, that that's not going to happen. But Biden, in, in his next two years, has to appoint the right people to the Secret Service, and they have to do a top-to-bottom evaluation, because I think this is just a symptom of a much bigger problem that's eventually going to compromise safety when it comes to the protection of a president. I don't want somebody, now that we know that they are political, Biden's really comfortable with having an entire detail in front of him. Maybe if somebody who's just a little bit slower than, um, than another uh, a protective person when there's a, a, sh a shot fired, God forbid, at the president. I mean, this is this has got to be a concern about the safety of our of of our uh, leaders, and because this organization seems to be corrupt and hollowed out at at its core. So I want to see what happens with the text messages. I want to see what happens with an overhaul and an overview and an Office of Inspector General report about the bigger problems that that probably exist at the Secret Service. We've reached the end of another midweek edition of Legal AF. And fortunately for us, we had some amazing developments this week that Karen, you and I got to talk about. We talked about Fawnie Willis being disqualified. We talked about Jody Heiss and his attempt to have his uh, subpoena quashed against him. We talked about the Department of Justice moving closer to a prosecution of Donald Trump in the inner circle at the White House. And we talked about, and with great sadness, the falling down of the Secret Service and, uh, and what it could mean for the future. Um, any parting words for our, as my as the sun sets slowly? I was just going to say, I was going to say, Popak lands. I was going to say, the sunset behind you is quite stunning, Popak. This is really, <laughs> I'm enjoying. I, wait till I show the audience, wait, wait till I show the audience the real sunset. Wait a minute. I'm not even sure I can pick this up. How no, it's, that? that's pretty, that's pretty spectacular. <laughs> that's yeah. amazing. But, 
But I take time out, as you do, from whatever I'm doing, to make sure that our legal aid efforts and the Midas Mighty are informed uh, uh, with facts and armed with facts about what's happening in the intersection of law and politics. And it's my favorite time on Wednesday to meet with you. Well, I'm thrilled you're back. I'm thrilled that we're Thank back together. Much. I miss I missed <laughs> you, Popa. <laughs> We missed you too. We'll have to well, offline. We'll get together in person also. <laughs> okay. Okay. And shout Take out care. to the uh, Midas Mighty and the Legal AFers. Mm-hmm.